you have your Bible handy, open it up to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. As I mentioned, the Lord willing, we're going to wrap it up this morning, and uh, it's been a fun study. Uh, it's just so much going on in this little four chapters, 80-something verses overall. Uh, I want to wrap up this morning, we're going to wrap up the text. We almost finished the text last week, uh, and we'll finish the text this morning. It won't take us that long to do that. But then we're going to go into, we're going to look at shadows and types. Uh, we'll talk about that more as we go, uh, as we look at and wrap up this marvelous book. So where we left off last week was Boaz, the, the hero of the story here, the kinsman redeemer. He's also known as the Goel. That's the Hebrew word. And, and what it is, is he was the one who was... Uh, to be the redeemer, the one who could redeem back people, people's lives uh, when they got jammed up back in those days. It was out of uh, the, the law of Moses where the kinsman redeemer has certain rights, certain responsibilities. Boaz wasn't the first one. He, was, he actually had absolutely zero legal obligation to do what he did here in this book. However, because he's a merciful compassionate, loving man, a man of great character, godly character, he steps in. So uh, Ruth had been to the threshing floor the night before, early in the morning, before sunup. She rose and and he said, you know, don't let it be known that the woman was here tonight, not because there was anything improper going on. As a matter of fact, he says that because he wanted to be sure that the people knew that, that... that there was nothing going on, that, that as she went forth, he didn't want people jumping to conclusions, getting into gossip and all that weirdness that we see around us these days. Talked about that last week. Um, so he says, look, I, I'm going to wrap this up quickly. If there's a, there's a nearer kinsman, a guy that's actually closer than me that has this responsibility first, if he doesn't redeem you, I will. So essentially Ruth leaves uh, she has no idea. She knows she's getting married, but she doesn't know to who. Uh, and we looked at that again as we went through the text. So Boaz goes to the city gate. It's where they transacted business. It would be like us going to the county courthouse or going to uh, the the, yeah, the court or to the city hall. Uh, that's where they conducted all of the official business of the day. And he goes there. He knows also, because it's the place where you'd come and go from the city, he knows this nearer kinsman's habits. And so he goes and he waits for this guy. And as he's passing by, Boaz calls to him and says, look, I want to sit down with you. Uh, interesting. Uh, again, we looked at the text last week. He calls this guy, but Samuel or whoever wrote the book of Ruth purposely uses a generic term. It'd be like him saying, hey, John Doe, uh, I want to talk to you. Come and sit down. And uh, he doesn't use anybody's name. He just uses this generic term, hey, so-and-so. So the guy sits down and there are 10 men. They're the elders of the city, uh, sort of convening, uh, not, not really a, technically a jury, but the men who would be able to attest to the matter that's transacted. That's how they did it. So he starts with it. He goes into the laws of the Goel uh, <laughs> out of the Old Testament, but he doesn't start with, hey, there's a woman who needs to be redeemed. Now, that's what he's after, but he starts with the, the law pertaining to property first. And he tells this guy, hey, 
piece of property here that Naomi had to sell. I mean, her husband died, her sons died, Melon and Chilion, sickly and pining. I love those names. Uh, and he says, look, we've got to do something here. That property needs to be redeemed. And that was the provision. We'll look at we're going to look a little bit more at Jubilee, the year of Jubilee this morning as we go too, because it's in the same chapter as the laws concerning the Goel. Well, so he, this guy says, great piece of property. Sure, I'll buy it. I'll redeem it. And then Boaz goes on to tell him, look, <laughs> there's also a woman involved, a Moabite woman besides, a foreign woman, uh, that in redeeming the property, you also have to redeem her. And uh, which means you got to marry her and bring up children to continue her family line. And I'm paraphrasing all this, but that's exactly what's going on. And the guy that gets him scratching his head is like, "Well, it doesn't look like as good a deal as it did." <laughs> so uh, I, I'm not sure uh, this is something that's going to work for me. And he says, "I can't redeem it." He changes his mind right there on the spot. So the nearer kinsman, the guy that was. The, the rightful one to take the place of, uh, Ruth's husband of, and, and redeem Naomi's property and all. He says, I can't. I don't want to mess up my inheritance. And, and we don't know if that was an excuse or if he, you know, for instance, had grown kids and he'd already dispersed it. We don't know. But he says, no, I, I can't do it. Boaz had already told him, look, I'm second in line. He says, you do it. So, uh, he seals the deal. Uh, in those days, it wasn't signed here. There's a contract. It's There's a whole bunch of people. And there would be a crowd gathering by this point because this is an important deal. Boaz is a man of great wealth, and he's an important guy in their community. So the people would have gathered around, and the guy removes his sandal, and he hands it to Boaz. That's how you uh, essentially sealed the deal. That's how it was concluded. I picture the guy limping off, you know, kind of like, have you ever tried to walk with one shoe? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, the instruction was that the woman would come up and spit in his face because she'd been dishonored. But there wasn't any lack of honor here because Boaz was working this to where he got what he wanted. The guy got what he wanted, which was not to be responsible for Ruth. And so everybody's coming out on this. That's where it, it, it ends with his transaction with the guy. Now, Boaz at this point stands up in front of everybody. He says, you are witnesses this day. This is sealing the deal. This is finalizing the contract because it's all verbal. Uh, these guys, they had, they had a verbal tradition when they talked about the law, when they talked about uh, the Bible. It was, it was a verbal society. And so that's why he had the 10 elders from the city. That's why there was a group gathered around. He says, you've witnessed today that I bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. He says, further, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife. So... Uh, he publicly proclaims his acceptance of responsibility to redeem Elimelech's land as well as to redeem Ruth through marriage. As I'm looking at this, something that occurred to me, as I mentioned, he had no obligation. This was all voluntary. This is because he is a, he's a good man. He's a godly man. And, and, and it was costly for him. Uh, four things that we see about Boaz's actions as the kinsman redeemer. Uh, I, I want to look at that for a minute and we'll move on into the text. Uh, the first is, is that he did this willingly. 
Boaz, he's a man of character and he sees the need and he believes that he is the one that can fulfill this need. He had no hesitation taking on this responsibility. He willfully took it on. And his aim, remember at the threshing floor, he said, I will settle this matter with the guy. And and Naomi says, he'll do it before (laughs) the day is out. He won't rest until he does it. So he willingly steps in because it's the right thing to do. Something that uh, I have, my wife and I were going through some uh, some stuff recently, and and she says, "Well, you know what? What is it that we're doing?" And I said, "What we're doing is the right thing, because the right thing to do is always the right thing to do. You look at that, forget the consequences, and that one thing will do you well, folks." As we apply God's word and as we look at and we're faced with decisions in our lives as to what direction to go, how to conduct ourselves, what to engage in, what to stay away from, a very good friend, a pastor in uh, Crescent City, California, uh, said this to me one time and, and it just resonated with the power of the Holy Spirit within my soul. The right thing to do is always the right thing to do. And then you consider the consequences. The second thing we see about Boaz here is he did this purposefully. Uh, All of his actions are deliberate. They're intentional. They're thought through. He's not doing this just on, on, you know, on a whim. He's very purposefully going through and conducting business. He's not leaving anything to chance. And he made sure everything was done according to the law of Moses. And, and he's by the book. Everything he presented to the nearer kinsman, the guy that was the rightful one to step in and take care of Ruth and the property, was by the book, by the the law of Moses. And and assuming the responsibility after the man refused was by the law of Moses. The provision was was that it would pass to him. So he's he's not just willing, he's purposeful. He's intentional in the way he conducts these affairs. The third thing we look at here is that Boaz is faithfully carrying these things out. And all that he did that day, he was fulfilling his promise to Ruth. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at, and the name of the message was promise. And, and he had made her a promise. He had said, look, I will do this. And he's faithful. His word is his bond. Uh, what he says, he does. He'd made her that promise at the threshing floor. I won't rest until this matter is concluded. And now here he is. The, the last thing we look at is he did this unselfishly. This wasn't for his own benefit. And yeah, we can conjecture that he was alone, uh, that we don't know if he was a bachelor or we don't know his family life or any of that. We know that he was an honorable man, but he wasn't doing this for his own benefit. From the very beginning, when Ruth comes to visit him and she's going out to find a field to glean in, before he even knows about Naomi, He's unselfish and generous. He wanted to maintain the name, the lineage, and the property of the dead because that's how they honored God, by adhering to his word, applying his word to their lives. And that's what he's doing. There's a shadow here in these things because the Lord Jesus willingly, purposefully, faithfully, and unselfishly performed the act of redemption for you and for me. Again, we're looking at these shadows, these impressions that we get from the book of Ruth, from the story of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, looking at Jesus, our great redeemer. 
So we're going to begin in verse 11, and we'll work through the, the verse 22, and then I want to go in and I want to look at seven things about this. So uh, buckle up. I got to move quickly. I, I actually, I, I had to get rid of about 10 pages of notes by the time I pared this down for this morning's message, or you would have been uh, <laughs> here for a long time. Verse 11. And all the people who were at the gate, he's still at the gate. He's just made this proclamation. I have decided I have elected to redeem and I'm redeeming the property and Ruth. All the people at the gate, the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. May he prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. So they're saying, we want you to prosper. We want your name to be known because you are doing something significant here. If only they could have known. So they pronounce a blessing on Boaz. It's a done deal. Boaz, he'd settled the matter quickly, fairly. Uh, and he was sealing in that he was sealing both women's future in his house, not just Ruth, but Naomi as well. When he, when the people make mention of Rachel and Leah, these were the wives of Jacob. If you go back to the origins of the nation of Israel, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel there at the brook Jabbok, when he wrestled with the angel all night and all that, he had two wives. Uh, he thought he was getting Rachel and ended up with Leah. <laughs> and he had, ended up having to work for his father-in-law for years more to get Rachel. So out of these two wives, he had sons. They became the tribes, the 12 sons of Israel became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when the people are pronouncing this on Boaz, they're saying, you're part of the lineage here. These were the mothers of Israel. Leah specifically would be the mother mother of Judah, the one whose tribe they belong. So as they continue with the blessing in verse 12, they say, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring, which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Now, I was sharing with Brian before service. (laughs) If you look at the family life of many of these people in the Old Testament, I mean, with Perez, yeah, he was born of Tamar and Judah. But Tamar, she was a foreign woman. She was a widow when he was born. I mean, there's some great parallels there. Uh, but with Perez, he, again, his mother Tamar was married to Judah's son, but he was not a godly man. It says that God took him out of the way, took his life. And so the law of the leveret, the brother, uh, came into play there, and that his brother took Tamar as his wife. Well, he wanted to enjoy his wife with the physical union, but he didn't want to have kids. And so he was, he dishonored her and he dishonored the Lord. Says God took him out of the way. So, uh, then through this whole series of events, Tamar ends up having a child through Judah. And it was, I'll, this is, this is like daytime television stuff, guys. I remember when I was a kid, well, I was an older teenager. Uh, my sister watched daytime television a lot. She watched the, you know, General Hospital and Dark Shadows and Days of Our Lives and all that stuff. And, and I, something I learned, and as I got older, I got into my twenties and I'd hang out with my peers. Somebody would start talking about one of the daytime TV shows and, and I got into habit. I had no idea what was going on with them. I would always say, well, what about the baby? 
And because in every one of those programs, there's always some weird circumstance where somebody's had a baby and, and they would just go into this whole thing and tell me all about, well, she didn't know it was hers and it was his sister's brother or whatever. And that's kind of how it came about that Perez was born here. He's like this child of very unusual circumstance. And yet he becomes the head of the portion of the line of Judah that whose descendants come down through time and establish Bethlehem. Judah had this son named Perez. Perez had a son named Hezron. Hezron had a son named Caleb. Now, not the Caleb that we see at Kadesh Barnea, the one who was with Joshua and the spies and all of that. This is another Caleb. Caleb married a woman and she died. Then he married another woman. And guess what her name was? Ephrath. And we don't know anything about her, but we do know that when Hezron died, he died in a place called Caleb Ephrathah. That became Bethlehem. That's how this place came about. That's how Perez became famous in these people's lives. As I mentioned, Tamar, she was a foreigner. She was a widow. So was Ruth. And the people are saying, may your house be like that of Perez and Tamar. Uh, who bore the son Perez from Judah. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. This is significant. The child, this son, according to Leveret law, the, the law of the, that assigned the duties to the brother, uh, would technically be Malon's son. Yes, he is the son of Ruth and Boaz, no question. Uh, and in, in the genealogies, in, in the uh, stuff in Matthew and in Luke, he's listed as Boaz's son. And yet, as according to the law, he was Malon's son because Boaz was the one that, stoop, that stepped in and took on the responsibilities in the family. He would be, this child would be now the nearest kinsman to Naomi, and he would eventually be her protector. So that's why they're saying that. It says, verse 14, that the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a close relative or a goel. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. She's born him. So the women affirm God's restoration with Naomi. Remember, uh, Naomi's name means sweetness. But when she came back to Israel and the women started to address her by name, she said, don't do that. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. So she has gone now from bitter to sweet. She said, I went out full and came back empty. Uh, I, I have a little bit of an issue with that because she really did go out empty and come back full because she was returning to the Lord. However, she says, I came back empty. And now we see that she's full. We see the faithfulness of God. We see the blessing of God in her life by her simply coming back to the land that she really had no business leaving. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. So Naomi here, once husbandless and childless, now has an heir. And he will carry on the family's line and through his birth and the lineage that went through Boaz. 
Verse 17, and also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed. And his father, he's the the father of Jesse and the father of David. Now, Obed means that it translates uh, two different ways that that it's translated. translated, Take your pick. It doesn't really matter, but it translates serving, one who serves, or it also translates worshiper. Worshipper of Yahweh. As far as Obed's life goes, there is little known about him after this, only that he is listed in the genealogy of Perez. Uh, in verse 18, now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. That's Caleb's brother. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot, begot Salmon. Salmon. <laughs> Sorry. Salmon. Now, Salmon was the husband of Rahab from Jericho. Remember, she was Rahab the harlot. I, I wouldn't want to go through life saying, oh, yeah, there's Rahab the harlot. We always connect her that way. But Rahab of Jericho, uh, and that was Boaz's mother. Now, Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed here. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David. That wraps up the book. However, When we look at the book of Ruth, it ends with the genealogy, but that's not where the story stops. The gospel, according to Matthew, begins with a genealogy. In Matthew 1, in the opening verses of the New Testament, we see the name Boaz. However, this time, the genealogy doesn't end with David. It includes him. It goes all the way through to Jesus, which is fitting. This firmly establishes these men in the line of Messiah. Uh, it's where the story was going all along because we see these shadows, these types. Uh, and I want to take the rest of our time and I want to look at seven connections between Boaz and Jesus. Uh, I'll move through them rather quickly because many of them we know just having studied this book. But I think they're important to tag these bases and relate them to how we see Jesus in these types and shadows in the book of Ruth. The first is the tribe of Judah. In chapter 1, we learn that Elimelech's family was in the tribal territory of Judah. Now, Judah was a person, but it was also a place. Uh, In chapter 2, Boaz is introduced as a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. So we know that there's a connection there. Before the promised land, Judah was Jacob's son. He'd received his father's blessing near the end of Genesis. At the end of Isaac's, or Jacob's life, I mean, uh, he, Jacob's words in his blessing include some imagery that's regal, that's kingly. In Genesis 49.10, Jacob speaking here, blessing his son, says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, the word Shiloh means he whose it is. So until the one whose deal it is comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So we see in this a prophetic word talking about the scepter will not depart from Judah. And we know that through Judah came the David the king. He would come from the tribe of Judah. A thousand years after David would come King Jesus. Now in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Remarkable. So Boaz is in the line, in the stream of Messiah. The second thing we look at is the town of Bethlehem. And we know that. We know that as the birthplace of Jesus. It's significant in this story. His ancestral tribe plus his hometown connect him to Christ. Being of the clan of Elimelech, Boaz was from Bethlehem. The opening chapter tells us that Elimelech's family were Ephrathites. We looked at that a moment ago, which is associated both earlier and later with Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the prophet Micah said, as he prophesied, he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you're little among the clans of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Definite reference to Messiah. Definite reference to deity. There's no man that could fulfill that prophecy. Judah would be the tribe from which would come the future king. Bethlehem would be the place of his birth. Three generations after Boaz and Ruth, David would be born in Bethlehem and Judah. A thousand years after that, Jesus would be born, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 5.2. While Jesus would grow up in Nazareth. Remember, he lived, he grew, spent his life in Nazareth, which is in the northern part of the country. Judah is in the southern part of the country. However, if you remember in the gospels, we're told that King Herod ordered a census to be taken so he could tax the people and they had to go back to their birth town, to their tribal territories to be counted. That's how, and so they had to make the trip down south to go to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph's family was from. So, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, but the Gospels in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 3, they deliberately include his lineage and his birthplace. Significant. The third thing we look at here, and this is really fascinating to me, guys, is the power to redeem. We talked about that last week, that Boaz had the power to redeem. His significance in the story is greater than his town or his tribe. In chapter 2, Naomi declares Boaz as one of our redeemers, as our Goel. We've looked at that term a lot through the study. Now, his role as the Goel stems from Leviticus 25. The redemption outlined there was designed to bring restoration to the destitute. The redeemer was commissioned and empowered by God to help the helpless. And when Ruth and Naomi landed back in Bethlehem, that's exactly the condition that they were in. They were penniless. They, we don't know if they were homeless or not. They were destitute. Ruth was a foreigner, a woman, uh, and a widow. And she would be at the lowest part of their social scale. However, when people acted, when they fulfilled the role of the Goel for their family, they were imaging the work of Yahweh to the destitute, to the helpless. They were carrying out, this all originated in the heart of God. As a matter of fact, aside from a few places where we see men carrying out the the role of the Goel, every other reference in the Old Testament has God acting as Goel, as Redeemer. These were pictures of the ultimate work that God would do through Christ and the cross. These people were vessels in the hands of the greater Redeemer. 
The redemption by Boaz was a picture of what God had done and would do for Israel and for the Gentiles. By acting as redeemer for the family of Elimelech, Boaz is a clear type, impression for Christ. We see so much fulfilled in his actions and who he is and what he does, the person and the work. And as we look at Christ, we look at him through the lens of the person, who he is, who he was and is, and what he accomplished. In a minor way, in a lower way, Boaz accomplishes redemption. We see things about his character that are clear as far as pointing to the character of Jesus. We see things about uh, the work that he accomplishes in redeeming these women that points to a greater reality in the redemption that we have in Jesus. Boaz is the ideal kinsman redeemer that's described in Leviticus 25. He foreshadows a redeemer who will embody that role in a greater way. Jesus came to redeem the spiritually destitute to those enslaved to sin. He came to those who were helpless without hope. I love the fact that the people that were attracted to him were sinners and tax collectors, harlots, people that were slipping through the cracks of society. That he came to the downtrodden. Uh, he says, you, know, you don't send a physician to the people who are well. He comes to those who are sick. He did that. He did all of it at an incredible cost to himself. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus is at the synagogue in Nazareth. He's launching his ministry there. And he has some very interesting things to say. He gets the scroll of Isaiah and he goes up to the front, and he begins to read. Now, uh, he reads from what we look at as Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. However, they didn't have chapter and verse markings, but he knows where to go. He is familiar with the word of God. He handles it well. And he says this, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news, the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, when Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, he stops halfway through verse two. Verse two in Isaiah 61 says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Why would he stop halfway through? Folks, that's the difference between his first coming and his second. When he came the first time, he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. When he comes to second, the second time, it will be for vengeance. It will be to avenge sin on the earth as he cleanses the earth at that time. That hasn't happened yet, and yet it will. If you look at the biblical record and you see how much has come true, how many of the prophetic words that are here have come to pass and you look out, you see in the future there are still yet things that are unfulfilled and this is one, it's a major one. You can, you, that can build your faith. You can take great confidence in the fact that he's not done and our lives are hidden in between. Our lives are hidden between him proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord in the uh, day of vengeance of our God. He goes on to say, now he doesn't, again, he doesn't quote the second part about his second coming, about the vengeance. He stops there and then he rolls up the scroll, sits down and he sees that everybody's staring at him and he just simply says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. What's he talking about? Well, 
Isaiah 61 is referring back to Leviticus 25, the same place where we find the laws and, and the things concerning the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. Now, it's a separate event, but what he's talking about is the year of Jubilee. And in the Old Testament, God had foreordained these units of seven years that the people, they would go for six years, they would till their land, they would do all of that. In the seventh year, they were supposed to let it rest. And God said, I will take care of you. And I'm greatly paraphrasing here, but I need to pare this down so we can move forward. So that would go on for seven periods of seven years. Now, on the 49th year, that would be a year where the land would lie fallow. But he said the 50th year, it will lie fallow as well. So the Jubilee year, this is a great semi-centennial, twice every hundred years festival that the Hebrews celebrated. The Jubilee year, they were, they were supposed to celebrate. There's no record that they did. There are some indications that possibly they did, but uh, we don't know for sure. But it was to proclaim, it was to be proclaimed on the 10th day of the seventh month of the 50th year by the blast of the shofars throughout the land. Now, if, if you're looking at different things that are indicative by date in the Old Testament, the 10th day of the seventh month is significant. Jubilee would begin on the Day of Atonement, the day when the sins of the people were atoned for, and it would go forward through that year. During the 49th and 50th year, as I mentioned, the the land would lie fallow. It was to give the land rest. We've talked about rest in this study, that the Hebrews were all about rest, and it was a greater rest than just letting the land, it was was the people themselves, they were only permitted to, they weren't permitted to farm the land. God said, I will take care of you. You can gather the produce that spontaneously, the volunteers that grow up in the land. I want you to have rest as well. All the property during that year reverted to its original owner. All who were slaves or captives were set free during the year of Jubilee. All debts were canceled. When Jesus referred to Isaiah 61 in Leviticus 25, he was stating that he himself was the fulfillment of the Jubilee. It's no longer an event. It's found in a person. Jubilee is a picture and a shadow of ultimate redemption. And he would be the kinsman who would redeem. Fascinating how that works. We see this. There's so much in the Old Testament that points to a future fulfillment of a greater reality That's found in Jesus. And as we look here and we see Jesus as the one who has the right to redeem, as he sat there or stood there in the synagogue in Nazareth, he was claiming that right. He is the redeemer and he is our kinsman. He took on flesh. Folks, part of the reason why Jesus took on flesh is so that he could identify with us so that we would be related to him as our redeemer as our kinsman. The fourth thing we look at is that he took a bride from among the nations. Now, people in Bethlehem would know that Ruth was a foreigner and the writer refers to her as a Moabite throughout this book. He's constantly referring to her as Ruth the Moabitess. The entrance of Ruth into the promised land and her worship of Yahweh reminds us that God in Genesis 12 promised blessing through Abraham to all the families of the earth. 
we see, again, we see an impression, we see an image, we see something that points to the greater reality that we have in Abraham. This is long before Israel came about as a nation. So by faith in Christ, Gentiles are the offspring of Abraham and thus heirs of those promises. We're told that clearly in the book of Galatians. So just as the book of Ruth is a story of redemption and marriage, so is the gospel. Folks, that's the essence of the relationship that we have with Christ. The new covenant unites a multi-ethnic wife. Doesn't matter what ethnicity you are to Jesus. She is a bride. The church is a bride from among the nations. Fascinating parallel. The fifth thing we see here about Boaz and as relates to Christ is constant, consistent acts of grace. We're told in James that faith without works is dead. And if that was Boaz's case, we can absolutely conclude that his faith is alive and well. Boaz spoke to Ruth in warm, merciful ways when they met, uh, took measures to protect her even. Uh, and before he, and this is again, as I mentioned, this before he knew that there was a connection between she and Naomi. Ruth was poor. She was a widow. She was a foreigner. So she represented the kind of person who was destitute, dependent, easily overlooked. Yet Boaz performed deed after deed of grace and mercy towards her. Among the various virtues that we see of Jesus evident in the four gospels, his kindness was consistently clear. He moved toward the despised. He reached out to the outcast. Whether it was a leper, a demoniac, a tax collector, a, the Samaritan woman, a beggar, they were deliberate targets of Jesus's grace and mercy, both to Jew and to Gentile alike. Because grace and mercy, folks, for for the Lord, they're not doctrines. Yeah, yeah, they're they're doctrines that we do well to understand, but as they're woven into our life, they become part of who we are, because. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. He's the embodiment of mercy. And as he weaves those attributes into our lives, we become more gracious. We become more merciful. We become more sensitive to the need in another. That's how our king resembles. We see the greater reality with our king that we see in Boaz. The sixth thing we see about Boaz is he was a keeper of the spirit of the law. Interesting. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a whole lid. Now, that is not the Christian law. <laughs> I, I've heard that mistranslated, mistaught more than once. What he's saying is, look, there are a couple of ways to get righteousness. One, you can be perfect in every conceivable way. Uh, good luck with that. Or two, you can put faith in me. So he goes through the law and he gives the letter of the law. You've been told that you should not commit adultery. And then he gives the spirit of the law. Well, I tell you that if you even so much as look on a woman with lust in your heart, you're there. So he's, he contrasts the spirit of the law with the letter of the law. And we see here that Boaz is a keeper of the spirit of the law. Let me explain. He not only kept the law of Moses, he went way beyond it. He permitted Ruth to glean in ways that weren't required by the law. He told her, I'll just go through a brief list here, to keep close to his reapers. He instructed his young men not to touch or rebuke her. He offered her their vessels of water to drink. 
He invited her to eat with his reapers like she was part of his household. He gave her access to the sheaves and the bundles that the men and the women in the field were already gathering together. The law of Moses didn't require Boaz to do any of these things. He was just, but also merciful. In this story, he embodies the spirit of the law. We see that Jesus came. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came that you might have life and that more abundantly. Why? Because he is full of grace. We're told in the gospel of John that the law came by Moses, but grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, grace and truth. The seventh thing we look at here as we look at these parallels between Boaz and Christ is he is an abundant provider. One of the themes in the book of Ruth is the journey from emptiness to fulfillment. In Ruth chapter one, we see that the promised land has famine. There's famine in the land. It's eventually filled with food again. Now, Ruth, or I mean, Naomi and Elimelech, her husband, they leave and they go to Moab. Uh, By the way, Naomi is a picture of backslidden Israel. She's a picture of disobedient Israel in this story. And they go and very difficult circumstances befall them. She goes out and there's a famine. She hears that there's bread back in Bethlehem, the house of bread. One of the things that we see in this is that as God moved, as his hand moved against the children of Israel in the, in the seven cycles of sin, restoration, and repentance and restoration, that as he moves, that the people would, the design in that was to get their attention, not to get them to run away. He wants to provide. We can remove ourselves from his hand of provision. We can cut and run. That's what Naomi did. That's what Elimelech did. Things didn't go well for them. Boaz is an instrument of the Lord's taking what is empty and filling it up. Each time that the writer reports Ruth returning home to Naomi as she's been out working in the fields, she has arms full of grain or her shawl so packed with grain that it has to be put on her head by Boaz. She shared in his bread and wine, Ruth did, when he said, come, dine with us. She ate until she was full, until she was satisfied. And she went home with leftovers. That's how the Lord is with us. In chapter two, we're told she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. So Boaz, he's an, he's an abundant provider. His actions in the story fill the arms and her stomach and later her womb and her future. He goes from emptiness to fullness. And we see that with both women, not just Naomi, but also with Ruth. In the four gospels, we see Jesus is generous with his provision to a scandalous degree. I mean, he, he was just beyond generous and he still is. As he ministered throughout Galilee, he proclaimed the gospel and healed, quote, every disease and affliction among the people. Generous. When he fed the hungry crowd of 10,000 plus people, they all left satisfied and his disciples filled the baskets with leftovers. God's people in the Old Testament had witnessed their share of of divine provision in their lives, but never 
could one come, did one come and say until Christ arrived, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. He's the living water. Drink from the water I give you. He told the Samaritan woman, you'll never thirst again. I'm the living bread. I came down from heaven for you. Jesus is an abundant provider. Yes, Boaz is an abundant provider, but it prefigures, it pictures a greater reality, a greater fulfillment in the provision that we have from our Lord. His grace is lavish. His mercy is unmatched. So as we wrap up, I have a question. If someone asks you to listen to a story about a redeemer from Bethlehem in Judah, and it was about someone who fulfilled and exceeded the law with his acts of grace and mercy and kindness, with abundant provision, before he entered into a covenant with a bride from among the nations, who would you say that's talking about? Folks, because we see these shadows in the book of Ruth, that applies to Boaz. Absolutely. But in a greater reality, in a, to a far greater degree, it applies to Jesus. The answer to that question could be either one. That's the beauty. That's the brilliance of God's word. We see Jesus here. He's the last Adam. He's the seed of Abraham, the perfect law keeper, the redeemer of God's people, the promised king from David's line. What a great book this has been. I, I have just so enjoyed teaching it. It's a challenging, frankly, it's a challenging book to teach uh, because it's a narrative. And I do better when I'm looking at, you know, we can chunk down on doctrines and, you know, take apart, do lots of word studies and all of that stuff. I mean, it's just how I prefer. I mean, I love this book. But when it's a narrative, it's, it's just, it's a different form of teaching. However, This is a beautiful part of God's word. It is something that we can glean from. I mean, as Ruth gleaned from among the sheaves of grain, we can glean from God's word. My prayer is that that's what we would do. Come back to this book in the future. As we wrap up this study, don't let it be your last look at the book of Ruth. There are layers, as there is with all of God's word. That's why you can go and you can read something, you can study something here and then come back and get so much more out of it the next time through. Because the spirit of God is the one who takes the word of God and drives it into the people's hearts. That's what he does with his people. The people in their day needed a redeemer and a king. Remember, this is the days of the judges. It ends with the last verse during the the period of the judges and there was no king in Israel. And every man was right in his own eyes. So they lacked a redeemer. They lacked a king. In Boaz, they got one. In David, they got the other. In Jesus, we get both and a lot more. If perhaps you're taking this study in and you don't know Jesus personally, he's not your savior. He's not your Lord. And you see the whole in your life. You see that you're in the condition that Ruth and Naomi were in when they first got back to Bethlehem. Naomi was struggling with her walk, her relationship with God. If you're in a place where you look around, and and I'll tell you what, folks, (laughs) these are very interesting days to be alive. 
they can produce a lot of stress if your hope is in man. And I'll tell you what, I don't like what I see in so many ways, in so many areas. I don't like the social climate. I don't like the political climate. But I sleep pretty good at night. Here's why. Because in the same way that we look at this story and we see that these are impressions, these are are things that point to the greater reality. We can get caught up in our world. We can get caught up in our, our daily lives to the point where these things hit us and they stress us. And yeah, we all do at times. But are you living for the greater reality, for the kingdom that is not seen, for the king that loves you more than any man or woman ever could? If you're not, give your life to Jesus. He went to the cross for you. When he died at that cross, he wore your sins. Everything that you've ever thought, said, or done for your entire life, past, present, and future, he laid his life down in your place. And now by simple faith and saying, Lord, I believe it. God, I I don't have answers for my life. I am stressed out by these things. I don't know where to turn. I don't know how things are going to go. And yet I see that there's a greater reality in this world than just the seen world. I see, by faith, I believe that there's a greater reality in you being Lord in my life and me taking that as the first relationship in my life. If you've never given your life to Jesus, pray a simple prayer. God, please forgive me for my sins. I turn from my old life and I embrace Jesus. I ask you to come in to take this dented, messed up, screwed up sideways life that I've been living and make it count. Not just for time, but for eternity. If that's what you're doing, I encourage you, pray that prayer. Give your life to Christ. Tell somebody about it. When Jesus called people, he called them publicly. Difficult for us to do here while we're closed, but tell someone that you know, tell a believer, somebody that you know that loves the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap up this this marvelous book, this this little four-chapter book, there's just so much depth and meaning, so many layers of understanding, as I mentioned. And Lord, they all point to you. You're the one with whom we have to do. As we reflect on the story of Ruth and Boaz, Naomi, Lord, let that push us in our thinking to reflecting upon you the greater reality. Lord, as we go through the day, we pray that you would cause us to be mindful of the things that we've looked at and learned. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would instruct us, you're our teacher, and that you would be glorified in our lives, that you would be enlarged in our understanding, glorified in our lives, and that as people bump into us, that we would spill Jesus on them. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are our reality. You are our life. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Lord, let us live in that place. We thank you. We pray. I pray for a, a blessing upon each person who's a part of this fellowship uh, this morning. Lord, we look forward to the day when we gather again together as one body, as your bride. Until then, Lord, we, I pray for divine protection that you would keep us.